so I uh, did not personally want to believe in gender roles. Um, I tried to blur the sexes in my own thinking. Um, as a way, way back when I was in my 20s, all right, years ago, um, that was a joke. Oh, uh, sprouts can be dismissed. Kindergarten and younger can go with Raquel. And Molly, I just saw Raquel walking. So way back in the day when I was in my 20s, um, early 20s to my mid-20s, I uh, was um, truly desiring to be, uh, well, let's just, I was hip. Let's just say it, <laughs> all right? Um, the, the idea of man and woman, other than the purely physical differences that are obvious, but the idea that we were created with distinct, in distinct ways and were to then in marriage and in church and in, uh, to carry out then different roles and responsibilities to me seemed backwards, old school, um, and something that as a hip in my own definition, young 20-something, I just didn't want to uh, want to believe. Um, and I don't want this to sound, I don't want to come across as uh, overly simplistic, but I just couldn't get around the scriptures on this one. Um, I kept hitting, up, hitting against passages that would offend my sensibilities. Um, like the passage that was just read, which we dove into last week, trying to understand what is a husband and what is a wife? What are our, our roles? And I will say that by God's grace, um, he saved me from my cultural captivity, uh, from my desire to be hip with culture. This we're, what, we're, what we're getting at today, I mean, if some of you, when you saw the front of your handout and you saw the, the title of the sermon was The Shocking Beauty of Gender Roles, you were like, what kind of church did I, did I just step into? <laughs> Are you serious? They're going there? This is one, this is one of these areas where uh, one of the few areas of Scripture, I think, that Scripture directly stands in opposition to mainstream culture around us. Um, where we, we're just like, like this morning, we gotta be honest, like we're going against the grain on this one. We, we're, we're like trying to paddle up water in a river that's quickly coming downstream at us. Um, so therefore, we, we tread lightly and we tread with, with grace and pray that God gives us wisdom and helps us to understand some of these really difficult passages like Ephesians 5 uh, and, and others. Six or seven years ago, I would have never dreamed that I would be standing before a church um, talking about the shocking beauty of gender roles. 
beyond my comprehension six or seven years ago. Today, however, some years later, I have, uh, I have witnessed how ignoring God's design for man and woman, how it has brought destruction into marriages, how it has brought destruction into families, how it has brought destruction into churches. I've seen, I've seen it. We look around us and we, we see it. Today, men are abandoning their posts as lover and leader of their wives and families, abandoning their posts and leading their churches. Women are then forced to raise children, try to figure out how to work a full-time job and make ends meet. And she's crushing. Domestic violence is on the rise. While men are still killing each other, women are still looking for their knight in shining armor, just hoping that he will come along and pull out his sword and slay this dragon that's in front of her. The objectification of women is uh, prevalent like never before. As we've discussed, pornography is the most consumed product of men ages 15 to 30. The objectifying continues as uh, women are told by culture that they are to be as sexually prowess as men and are to find their own freedom in that area. Motherhood uh, has been unfortunately downplayed and in some ways disregarded. Uh, a friend of mine who is not a believer, uh, hanging out with him last summer, and he, um, he, he said to me, at the time, forgetting actually that my wife has children, <laughs> he said to me, um, it, it, how did, I'm going to forget, forget his words now. Um, he, he was talking about how uh, disgraceful it is for women to uh, stay at home and focus on raising their children and not focus on a career. His words that I directly re remember were, it is a waste of life. At which point I reminded him that my wife stays at home with our children and I don't think she's wasting her life. but we've, down, we've downplayed the ability to carry a child. I mean, we, we talk about being pregnant and, and we talk about that as a negative thing. Being a mother as a negative, as something that holds you back, keeps you down. It's unfortunate. That's where we're at in our, in our culture today. Um, and then, therefore, abortion skyrockets, women 
are often forced to, like I already said, be the, become the primary breadwinner and try to figure out how to make ends meet while the man is lazy. Crime rises through the roof. So what's the answer? Because we've tried liberation. What's the answer? Wendy Shalit, who, who happens to not be a Christian, which I think is an important little remark here. Wendy Shalit, a secular writer, um, who is a, uh, has become sort of a student of culture, uh, specifically a student of feminine or women culture. In her book, The Return to, uh, to Modesty, she said this. She said, the best protection against rape, stalking, and domestic violence is to raise men who both understand that women are different and would never dare to take advantage of this difference. It's in many ways evident that our uh, so-called liberation hasn't been liberation. The blurring of the differences hasn't helped us. And what are, what are those differences? Is it, is it purely physical? Is it, is, are the differences between men and women simply the ability to procreate? Is that all it is? The question we're asking is, is there more? Is there actually something in the very design of God as he created us male and female? Is there something in that design uh, that reflects God's character? That says something to us of who God is and actually when we can rightly understand it creates a, a, a people, a marriage, a culture, a society, and a church which thrives which has found true, true liberation, being completely free in the Spirit. So that's where we're going today. Last week, we were in Ephesians 5. Like I said, we kind of broke it down. We talked about husbands. I, I kind of yelled at the husbands a little bit. Um, hope I didn't make you upset. But we talked about husbands just stepping up, leading in their homes, wives completely giving themselves to their husbands. Um, and then we, then we moved on. But this topic is so countercultural. It's, it's uh, truly going against the grain of our mainstream world that it really, I felt, was led to believe, I hope by the Spirit of God, that it deserves more exploration. So what we're going to do good today is we, we just started there with the Ephesians 5, but we're going to quickly move from there to a broad sweep of, of the scriptures to understand God's, God's design for us as, as men and, uh, and women. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to the very first page, uh, the table of contents. This, by the way, outside of the inspired words that, that are here in the scriptures, uh, this is the most non-inspired page in the Bible. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand and uh, somebody can get you a Bible in the back. Anybody need a Bible? All right, everybody's got a Bible. Well done. 
So the table of contents, uh, which actually really is important. You guys need to get to know this page, all right? It, I mean, we can learn a lot from the table of contents. Uh, Genesis, the first book. This is the book of beginnings. We're going to start there. Uh, we have to understand the beginning. We have to understand creation. We have to understand the fall. And we're going to track right through to the New Testament. Uh, we've hit Ephesians. You'll see 1 Corinthians. We're going to hit that. Uh, you'll see 1 Timothy. We're going to hit that and begin to understand God's design. So everybody turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And uh, if you would, just allow me to pray as we dive into this. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together today as a family, as a worshiping body. Um, God, as we do... Uh, desire more than anything to align ourselves with your word, uh, to align ourselves with your truth. Um, we do ask that you open our eyes, that you give us wisdom that is beyond our own. Uh, this, this message that you have put on my heart, I pray that you will communicate it through me. And if there's anything, God, that I say in my own flesh, that it will be quickly forgotten and that only your truth will remain. God, take these words from Genesis, from 1 Corinthians, from 1 Timothy and other places and do something in our hearts. And God, as we look at your design uh, for us as human beings, that we will not be caught up in legalism or a list of rules, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, but we will rather be drawn to the cross, we will be drawn to redemption, and we will see the great beauty of reflecting your image in every aspect of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God then, in the very beginning, creates male and female both in his image. All right, very important to know. Both male, and by the way, history has not always believed this. Both male and female, equally created in the image of God. Complete equality in worth. And something then about male and female then reflects what? The image of God. If you turn to 1 Corinthians, actually you don't even have to turn there. I think we can throw it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, the scriptures go on to further explain what this means then for male and female to be created in the image of God. Which, by the way, before we go there, let's understand this. If we are created in the image of God, which means this, we're meant to, to act like a mirror and reflect God's image, all right? So when people see us, we talk about this a lot, when people see us, God's image is bouncing off of us and they're, they're seeing a glimpse, a picture, a piece of who, of who God is. And so then, if, we, if humanity is created in the image of God and we exist and operate and live outside of the image of God, will we have fulfillment, joy, and contentment? The answer is no. 
we will have fulfillment, joy, and contentment to live in the way that God created us to live, which is at its core, and this is kind of theoretical, I understand, but we're going to get more practical. It's, it's to reflect his image, all right? It's to reflect his being, reflect his, his glory. That's where we find most contentment, joy, fulfillment, and happiness in life. And so the scriptures then break this down for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, it, this is a passage that's talking about how the church is to uh, organize themselves as a, a, a passage that talks about what, what it looks like when we come together. Um, he goes on to say that women should wear head coverings and men should not have long hair and kind of interesting things that we're going to get into in a little bit and understand what that means. But he starts it with this preface. I want to read this. From, this is from Paul to the Corinthians. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of, the head of every man is Christ. The head, of every, the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So the, so the head of the woman is the man. If we stopped right there and left it right there, we would all be scratching our heads saying that it sounds like the most demeaning thing I've ever heard in my life. I've got a head. I don't need his brain. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So what's it saying? It goes on. It gives us a model. The head of Christ is God or the Father. Now let me ask you this. Who's greater, the Father or the Son? Which one's greater? They're, they're, they're equal. They're equal. The Father is not greater than the Son. The Son is not greater than the Father. They are absolutely, eternally equal in worth. It's actually a heresy to say otherwise. I, I actually, in all of my studies, I read one argument arguing for sort of the blurring of the sexes. And, and the way it explained this passage was, well, Christ for a time made himself lesser than the Father and, uh, and then eventually resumed his equality with the Father. That's heresy. I mean, you guys got to understand that some nut job like 1,500 years ago came up with that idea and the church quickly wrote it off as heresy. The Father and the Son are eternally equal, and when the Son came to the earth, he, was, he continued to be eternally equal in worth with the Father. So, but what we see is this. With this eternal equality within the Godhead, and if you're not a Christian here, Christians primarily believe, or we do believe in what's called the Trinity. We talked about this a couple weeks ago that there is the Father, God, God is one God, yet three persons. There's the Father, there's God the Son, who is Jesus, and there's God the Holy Spirit that fills us and, and seals us. That's what we believe as Christians. And at the very core of our faith, at the center, I mean, the, the pendulum on which all of our faith swings, is this declaration that the Father sent the Son into the world because he, what? He loved us, right? So he sent the son into the world to, to live the life that we could not live, to die 
for us on our behalf, thereby taking our sins on him on the cross and forgiving us and redeeming sinful humanity. So the Father then sent the Son and the Son willingly and freely submitted himself to the will of the Father. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When things were very, very difficult, sweating blood, in anguish, being pressed and crushed. And he said, Father, if it's your will that this cup be taken from me, like, please, take it away. And then he quickly just reminded himself and and went, went right back to this place of, but may your will be done. Like, Jesus freely and willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father for the eternal redemption purposes of man, mankind. And so here in 1 Corinthians 11, that's simply what Paul is saying. Our model for headship and submission is nothing what culture tells us. It's not anything that you have seen on TV, and it probably has nothing to do with the way that you've, you've thought, uh, th- thought of it in the past. Our model for headship and submission is actually found in the eternal trinity. So while there is eternal equality between God the Father and God the Son, there is also this eternal headship and submission between the Father and the Son. So he says, women, submit to your husbands. The head of every woman is the man as the head of Christ is God, is the Father. So let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back to our story with Adam and Eve and kind of watch this thing play out. So they're created then in the image of God, which we've already established. Then that means as male and female, one piece of that image, one, one expression of that is in the way that we lead and in the way that we submit to one another. And in doing so, we actually are, are uh, imaging or reflecting the very nature of our triune God. And then it goes on. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Flip, flip your page. Genesis chapter 2, verse, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the dust, the man, the man, I'm sorry, I can't read. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. First Corinthians chapter 11, going back to that, as well as First Timothy 2, which we're going to dive into in just a moment. They both root then headship, not, uh, or they, they root it in the image of God, and they also root it in the creative order, which kind of seems a little strange. And I, I often hear people and read people who say that just because man was created first doesn't mean anything about authority or headship. The problem with that argument is the scriptures just simply say otherwise. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that uh, the woman was not created before the man, but the man was created before the woman. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and then they both begin to explain then how the man should lead and love his wife and, and his 
his church. And so then God creates, God creates Adam. He places him in the garden. Uh, he's, he's there to work the ground and also to enjoy communion with God. And, and by the way, after everything that God creates, what does he say? This is good. Like God really enjoys his creation. Creates the sun. This is really good. This is good. This is good. This is good. Creates man. This is good. But then God surprises us as the story goes on. Look at, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. I mean, this is the first time in his creative act, God all of a sudden comes along and says, wait a second, something's not right. It's not good, he says, that man should be alone. Every man in this room right now say amen, especially if you have a wife sitting next to you. <laughs> amen. It is not good that the man should be alone. And he says this, I will make him a helper fit for him. This word helper, uh, again, is used later on in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, especially 1 Timothy 2, as Paul says that Adam was not created as the helper for Eve but rather Eve was created as a helper or for Adam. So then as God in his, in his sovereignty and in his design is creating male and female, both in his image, he creates man and then he creates Eve to be man's helper. Now, at this point, someone might say, once again, that's just ridiculous. That sounds, again, it sounds maybe demeaning. to be called a helper. Now, listen, the only reason we would think that that sounds demeaning is because you have no clue what the word helper means. The word helper in the Hebrew is the, is, is the word ezer, which is used in the Psalms, specifically Psalm chapter 10, Psalm chapter 22, Psalm chapter 44, God uses this same word as a title for himself, as the helper, the azer of humanity. God, listen, women, the title that you were given is a title worthy of God himself. It's a title that in the Psalms, God said, I am your helper. I am your azer. It is not in any way a title that is demeaning or demoting, diminishing of who you are as a human being. If anything, it is a title that raises you up further and farther beyond any movement could ever raise you and gives you the title that God himself uses, helper. So Adam then is created to work the ground and Eve is created as his, as his, as heir, as his helper. Let's stop right there. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we actually got on the screen, so you can just, just look up there if that would help you. We're going to be kind of all over the place. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be going back to Genesis, so don't lose your spot there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 
Paul here, again, he's, he's addressing the church. Uh, he's talking about how the church should act as they come together, how they should organize themselves, how they should worship. And he says this he's, in verse 8, chapter 2, 1 Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men uh, should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's good to know. <laughs> so... Don't lift your holy hands if you're angry or quarreling with someone, someone, fellas, all right? That's called hypocrisy. And God says, I don't even like your worship when we do that, when we worship out of hypocrisy. It disgusts him. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who pre- profess godliness with good works. And there's, uh, this is written in a time with, uh, in, in, within the Roman world, what was referred to as the new Roman woman, which was very uh, sexually provocative. Um, the, uh, allowing their hair to just kind of flow was a sign of a prostitute. And so essentially what Paul's saying here is women dress modestly, like don't, don't uh, take your dressing cues from MTV and then come to church looking like Nicki Minaj or someone else. I, th- I mean, I think that's what he's saying, right? Pretty much. That's, that's how he would say it today. Dressed, dressed modestly. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what could he possibly, what could he possibly mean there? To to further understand this, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which I believe will also come on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. Paul here, he's, he's again, he's addressing the church and how they come together and how they interact with each other. And he says this, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are judged to the control of the prophets For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And in verse 34, he follows that with saying, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Now, we we know off, right off the bat, if you are reading 1 Corinthians 14 at all, that Paul is not saying women should be silent, period because he's just said, when women prophesy, dot, dot, dot. All right? So he's, he's already said women prophesy in the church, women pray in the church, women testify in the church to God's goodness. So what's he referring to here when he says women should be, should be silent? I believe it's going back to verse 29. This is the subject matter, matter he's coming off of. He's talking about how we should organize ourselves and how we should handle prophecy if someone has a word from the Lord, how we should handle that. In verse 29, he says, when two or three prophets speak, the others should weigh carefully what is said. 
So this is a, what you might call an elderly or a church leadership kind of role where doctrine is being determined and where prophecy is being judged. Whether or not this is truly a word from the Lord. So what Paul's saying then is, and I just want to go with what he's saying here and then we're going to kind of come back. What he's simply saying is, is when doctrine is being determined or prophecy is being determined whether or not it's a word from the Lord, the women are to freely and willingly submit that to the men that are in the room. All right, so that's what he's saying. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 11 and 12 once again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So again, we, we, we're understanding now that there is some kind of specific uh, teaching that's happening here. Uh, Paul is about to launch into, in the next chapter, if you, or if you want to just turn the page, a couple verses later, the qualifications for the overseers or the elders of a certain congregation. And as he is building up to that, as he's prefacing with that, what his direction is, is simply this, that there is a specific kind of teaching that, is, that, that uh, women are to refrain from and willingly submit to, uh, to the men. We know that that's not referring to all teaching, as Priscilla, along with her husband, instructed Apollos in a one-on-one discipleship relationship. But there is this specific kind of teaching, Paul's saying, which I would suggest it comes with authority as he links these two together, with a, an authoritative, directive kind of teaching. That then is limited as he goes on to not anybody in the church, not even all men in the church, but to the elders in the church. And so then if you flip the page in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we then read Paul's qualifications for elders, and he stops and he takes two verses to fully explain that an elder must be someone who is already demonstrating that he can pastor his own house well. He takes two verses out of all the qualifications. I mean, if we were to sit down and say, for an elder or for a pastor, what are the most important things that, a, that an elder must, must have? We might list not greedy or not quarrelsome. I mean, these things might pop into our head. He takes two verses to expound on the fact that elders, going back to last week, Ephesians chapter 5, elders are to be, first and foremost, men who are already pastoring their homes very well. Now, a little side note, that's not to say that an elder must have a family as Paul himself was most likely single and childless. But he is to be the kind of man that is taking care of what's right around him and pastoring and shepherding well those who are right around him. So now, where does, where does Paul go with this? Why, why, is Paul, why is Paul saying this? I mean, is this, a, is this really a big deal? Is it something that we should talk about? Some people would disagree. 
Why, why make it a big deal? Why, why, why bring this discussion up? Paul, Paul says this. He takes us back to Adam and Eve. Look at this in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, so he grounds now the headship and the leadership of the man in creation. Verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let's be clear. The, the, Eve, the woman, was deceived and she ate the fruit. And that was wrong. Everybody agree? What Paul's saying here, he's not demeaning women. He's not saying women are unfit for leadership. That, this is not his point. He's not saying women are more gullible. He's actually getting at something deeper than that. The woman, he says, was deceived. We don't know why she was deceived. The scriptures don't say. But the woman was deceived and she ate. Adam, he says, was not deceived. And what did he do? He let his woman fall. And then, not being deceived, he took the fruit and he ate himself in full knowledge of what he was doing. Let's go to it. Let's, I, want, I want you guys to see this. Go back to Genesis chapter, chapter 1. Or chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent comes to the woman. Look at verse uh, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desi uh, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you guys see what's going on here? Humans were placed in authority over the animals. God placed man in this role of headship and leadership and what's happening here over the woman, what's happening here is all roles right now in the fall, in this cosmic moment, are being reversed. And the animal, the serpent, comes to the woman and directs her, leads her, and then the woman turns and leads her husband, Adam. So God's design then, which was meant to reflect His glory and His radiance and His beauty, His eternal equality and His eternal headship and submission was in this cosmic moment turned upside down and everything was reversed. And chaos ensued. What happens when we uh, ignore the scriptures and we 
ignore some really difficult, tough passages and, and hope we can culturally just get along with, with, with it. What happens often, and I see this and I, and I say this with trembling, chaos often ensues. Guys, this isn't just about who's allowed to do what. That's not what this is about at all. This is about life. This is about thriving within your marriage, thriving as a single person, thriving within your families, thriving within our churches, thriving within our societies. This is about reflecting the beauty and the glory of our triune God. I have seen the uh, chaos that ensues within my own marriage some years ago as I ran and abandoned my post. I have seen the chaos that ensues in churches, that ensues within friendships, among single men, A marriage which ignores this, a marriage which ignores the husband's, the man's call to lovingly lead his wife as Christ loved the church, which means that he completely gave herself for her. And so it's a leadership, it's a servant leadership that builds her up and protects her and guides her. A marriage that ignores that. Often falls into chaos. A church which ignores that produces men which are weak and wimpy and women that are frustrated. A single man that, re- that ignores this. He ignores his call to honor and love and lead his Christian sisters and instead he hooks up with them and then he blames the hookup on her and has everything in common with his father Adam who blamed the sin on her. As women are told that they must usurp the authority, they must be, in order to have identity, they must be as strong and as sexually prowess and as successful as, as a man. As we subtly, without realizing it, begin to deny God's design for us, the way that we were created to thrive, Chaos ensues. I want you to look at the curse with me. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. So they fell, they sinned. Sin entered the world and death through sin. Which, by the way, let's just stop for a moment. A little thought that just kind of popped in my head. Who does Paul hold accountable in Romans for the fall? It's not Eve. Death came through Adam. Mm. Man, I hope, I hope if you are in sin that you are trembling as you consider the, the, the call that God has for you. All right, look at the fall. Look at the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse uh, 16. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And uh, by the way, little side note, Mark just had a baby. And uh, Kirstie knows well this part of the, the fall right here. Um, but uh, congratulations, Mark. Little, kind of a weird spot to congratulate a new dad. But All right, back to the curse. Multiply your pain and childbearing and pain, you'll bring forth children. Look at this. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, some have speculated that that word desire is referring to sexual desire. That because of the fall, fellas, that because of the fall, women sexually desire you. Like, most of you dudes would be like, that is not a curse. That would be a blessing. Look, this is, I want you to see what desire means here. This is actually a very rare word uh, in the Hebrew, in, in the Old Testament. And one of the very few places we see it in the Bible is in the very next chapter, just a few verses later. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's, same word, desire is for you. Now, how does sin desire you? Sin desires to control you. Sin desires to dominate you. You see, the curse here for Eve is that she will now have that same kind of desire for her husband to control him and to dominate him. And his curse, or the curse as it continues, and he shall rule over you. And this isn't talking about some biblical, godly kind of leadership. This is talking about domination. This is talking about men who are taking advantage of their size and their strength and they are ruling with an iron fist over their women. You see, when things were reversed, chaos ensued and as sin entered into the world, everything became twisted and everything, every part of us, every bit of our being then became distorted. Our roles, our, listen, our gender roles were twisted and were distorted. And I should say, put that into the present, they are twisted and they are distorted because of sin. Because of sin, uh, we, have, we have distorted the beauty, the beauty of masculinity and femininity. Because of sin, today, uh, we, 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 we embrace this, this sort of blurring, this denial to talk about God's design. Because of, because of sin, we have men who have grown mustaches and have muscles, yet they are passive and they are wimpy because they walk out on their wives and on their children. 
because of, because of sin, uh, hands are tied. Men are often afraid to lead. The only kind of masculinity many men know is domineering and domination and objectifying, and we call that being a real man, when in fact that's merely just boyhood, immaturity. Because of uh, sin, Sin has, has led women to, uh, to desire, to control and dominate their, their husband or the man in general. Um, or the opposite, because of sin, women have laid down as the doormat for their domineering husband and have allowed themselves to simply be an object for his gratification. Sin has distorted us in every way from the aggressive all the way to the passive. And today, uh, while, while we believe that we are enlightened, the question I'm, I'm asking is this. As a result of our culture informing us of God's design, are, we, are our marriages and are our churches thriving as a result? And the unfortunate reality, I mean, it's easy to just look around and say, no. I mean, I can't put my finger on the why, but I don't see a lot of thriving around me. The result has been spiritual aimlessness and weakness and laziness, loss of nerve among men to step up and to lead. They have shrank into the background. Uh, Frustrated women who intellectually do not want to believe what the Bible is explaining, yet their lives are caving under the weight of deadbeat dads and husbands who walk out and men who refuse to lead in their homes and in their churches. And this is why, guys, like after last week, I had so many conversations with people in tears. Because even though we like we're going against the culture here, we know that we emotionally, just subjectively, we crave this. So many, I mean, I've never had a conversation with a woman who, no matter how strong she is and how successful she is, who doesn't crave to be led by a strong man in this way. I've never met a man who, regardless of how many times he's run out, doesn't admit that there's something within him that wants to pull out the sword and slay the dragon and lead. We were designed this way. So not just the biblical and intellectual response, but our subjective response is to to crave this. God's design for us is to thrive, not bondage. It's to thrive as a single person. It's to thrive as a married couple, it's to thrive as a church and as a society. So, what do we need? What do we need? What we don't need is to blur, to ignore, to try to, to, try to uh, deny. We've been left with uh, men who We've been left with men who, are, who believe that the women around them are, can spiritually do fine without them. 
we're left with men who are spineless, who have abandoned their post. It's a load that's too heavy for them to carry. We're left with single men or married men for that matter who hook up with their sisters and then blame it on the sister. We're left with women who are angry and frustrated, who have been told that the Bible is out of date, that it's bondage, that they really don't want that and what they really want is some kind of liberation. Women are told that their self-worth will come not from God's design, but rather from seeking to be masculine. And when they finally can act in every way as a man, then they will somehow all of a sudden have self-worth. And it has left them frustrated and confused and deeply hurt and in great bondage. And there's no freedom that we found outside of God's design. So this is what we need. Two points of application, if you want to write these down. Two points of application for us. Number one, the woman's worth uh, is not found in seeking masculinity. Women, I want you to hear this very loudly. Your, Your worth is not found in seeking a role or seeking a position in masculinity. I've already alluded to it, but I, I want to say this again because I, this is kind of heavy on my heart. I think it's a great sin and a tool of the enemy to tell a woman that her body is somehow inferior because she has to bear children. Wendy Shalit, again, going back to, to her, she goes, in her book, Return to Modest, just goes crazy on this subject. What more degrading thing can we tell women than to tell them that motherhood is not good enough? That raising the next generation of human beings is not good enough for you? And that you need something else? Listen, what is so radical about the church The early church in the New Testament, when the scriptures were being written, the radical element of the church was that they were actually lifting up women as women. Not telling them they needed to be something else. And so going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it's talking about head coverings and men not having short hair. What he's he's getting at is, is simply this. Women should look like women. Men should look like men. Why? Because your worth, women, is found in being a woman. You have been given great worth as a female. And so the church then was lifting women extremely high. Paul wrote, in Christ there is no slave, no free, no Jew, no Gentile, no what? No male, nor nor female. What's he saying? Our worth does not come from our gender. Our worth does not come from our roles that we play. Our worth does not come from whether or not we're on this side or that side. Our worth comes 
from Christ. That's where our worth is found. Women, your worth is found in Christ, not in the man. In the, in the early church, Christian women were full members of the covenant community, which was very radical. They ministered to the poor, labored side by side with Paul in evangelism. They discipled young believers. They served as equals alongside their husbands. They prophesied, they prayed. And in our church, women will do and do do all of those same things. We need strong women who have a profound impact in their homes and in the church and in society, who serve, who start ministries, who pray, prophesy, teach, disciple, facilitate small groups, not to mention the utterly profound role of raising the next generation. Women, your worth comes from Christ, not from seeking masculinity. Secondly, Second point of application. Men are called to step up. Guys, listen. The Bible essentially, as, it's, as the Bible talks about gender and roles, it is essentially regularly, repeatedly calling you to just step up and stop acting like Adam. Men are called to step up. Listen, I have a lot of conversations on this topic, one-on-one, two-on-two, pre-marriage, post-marriage. There are far more women who are craving to be led in the way that Christ led the church, all right, and to be loved in that way. There are far more women craving this kind of leadership than there are men willing to step up and lead in this way. Because for too many men, they are spineless, they are weak, and they are wimpy, and it's just a load that they're not willing to carry. It's too heavy for them. And so the Bible then calls men to step up in two areas, primarily in the home, to take responsibility for their marriage covenant, to stop blaming it on her, to protect and to lead her into a loving relationship with God and with you, and men are to step up in the church as they are called to, to pastor their own homes. They're also called to pastor and lead in a servant capacity within the church as pastor slash elder. Listen, there is a f- very fine line between family and church in the New Testament. The idea of a man leading and loving at home and then often in their case, church coming into your house because that's where they had church and somehow switching that just didn't make sense to them. So women or men, are you're called to step up, to start spiritually leading. And even more so, this is once again rooted in the Trinity. It's rooted in this eternal triune God with co-equality and submission and headship built into his very essence and us then being made in his image and reflecting that image 
to the world all around us. So what we need then, my friends, is redemption. Listen, this is the, this is the message of Ephesians. I mean, as we've been reading through Ephesians, as we've been just working through it over the last eight weeks, we've entitled our series Rich because Ephesians is all about our great riches that we have through God. And then we come to this strange spot in Ephesians chapter 5, which seems to offend our modern sensibilities. What we have to understand is that this is part of the wealth. This is part of the riches that we have been called into. This is not bondage, this is liberation. The message of Ephesians is this. We were once dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We were dead. We could not reflect the beauty and the glory of God. We did not even have the ability to do so. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to die for us, Christ bled for us, the Spirit then sealed us and gave us new life. And so now we have the ability to reflect his image to the world around us. The church, we are called to be a manifestation of God. We, the, the world is to be able to, to look at us and get a glimpse into the Godhead and to begin to understand who God is. And guys, listen, because of the cross, because our sins no longer reign over us and we're no longer enslaved to our sins, we now have the ability, men, we have the ability to lead not, and, and not take advantage, to not lead for our flesh or to not lead out of our flesh or for our own benefit. We now, because we have been forgiven of our sins and we've been given new life, we have the ability to lead her and to love her into a loving relationship with God. To build her up. Because sin has been eradicated, women, you can now be led in that way. Look, I will be the first to say if sin is not eradicated in the man's life, there are many areas where you are not going to be able to submit to him. What Paul is calling us to, what the scriptures are calling to us to, what God is calling us to, is for men and women to be transformed by the Spirit of God, made into a new, a new creation, and to now reflect to the world around us the eternal nature of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you... Uh, take these, these truths and then you, that you plant them on our hearts. Uh, God is, um, as it is in many ways difficult to understand uh, your words to us, which are so countercultural in many ways. God, we trust that your word brings life that your word brings healing. And Lord, we ask that as we uh, seek to live out the design that you have given us, that, that we then uh, are blessed with marriages that thrive. We're blessed with families that thrive, with single men and women 
who thrive with a church that thrives. Lord, we thank you for the fact that though we were dead, though we deserved nothing, in your riches you gave us everything. And God, may we be able to reflect your image to the world around us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.